Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And welcome back to the House of Pod. I am Dr. Kabe Hoda. I will be your host on this little medical podcast where we look at the intersections of health, science, popular culture, and politics. I'm still working out the tagline for the show, like four years in. I haven't figured out like a good tagline yet, but if you guys have one, let me know. Today, we're talking about violence against doctors and healthcare workers in general. Joining me to do that, we have some very special guests. First of all, returning champion, one of my favorite people on planet Earth. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say uh, the entire solar system. Ryan Marino, Dr. Ryan Marino. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. How's it going? God, I miss you, man. <laughs> I really do. I really miss you. Like I go like five shows without you, and that's like the my max. That's where I max out. I can I do know. Like five episodes without you, and then I'm done. It feels weird to not be not be here. You should be here, man. You should be here. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is a good topic. It's not like the most fun topic, <laughs> but I'm glad you're here to help me through it. Um, but we have two guests that we're going to talk to today, and I'm very excited to have both of them on. Let's start with MD, PhD, Dr. Allison Huckenpaller. How are you, Dr. Huckenpaller? You know, glad to be here talking with you guys. Can we call you Allison? Of course. And you are a psychiatry resident, is this correct? Yep, at Barnes Jewish in St. Louis. How, how are you liking psychiatry so far? How's it going for you? You know, it's going great. Uh, made the right choice. I'm pretty happy. Was it psychiatry or something else? I uh, actually applied to three different specialties in the match. Uh, Which ones? Uh, psychiatry, neurology, and internal medicine. So 
Okay. Uh, that, that all, that tracks you're like neurology, psychiatry, they're pretty similar. I mean, yeah. the, the vibe is there. Internal yeah. medicine, that was your safety one. I get it. I know. I'm an internal medicine doctor. I get it. I know. <laughs> um, also joining us, we have Yusuf Fauzi, a medical student at Stanford. Yusuf, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. You know, I went to Berkeley, so I am going to have to give you shit the whole time, right? <laughs> well, um, I can take it. Good, good, good. Uh, how is how is medical school going? It is certainly going um, and not stopping, but on rotations and doing surgery. So working those long hours, but it's been great so far. Are you just holding retractors at this point or are you actually getting to like do stuff? Well, I'm doing plastics and hands. So there's a lot of uh, looking at small fields, but there's a fair amount of doing too. What's the longest surgery you've had to watch at this point? Ooh, um, probably six hours. So it wasn't terrible. That's pretty rough, man. <laughs> Wait, uh, did you, were you there just standing the whole time? I was, um, I was suctioning. I was holding some tissue. I was doing the things. Did you get a pee break? Or were you there the whole time? I was there. I was there for it, but I'm staying uh, positive because I'm on gen surge next month. So I think it's only going to get longer. Yes, good. I get you. I hope you really get to experience like a 12 hour case and just really feel it good for you. What are you going to do? What are you going to go into? Uh, probably emergency medicine. All right. Yeah. Well, Ryan, what, 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 how do you feel about that, Ryan? What do you say to that? That's the best specialty, hands mm. down. I feel like there's a bias here. <laughs> right. Ryan, what was the longest when you were in medical school or residency? When you're doing residency, I think you probably do surgery, right? Do they ever have you go in as an as emergency medicine? You do surgery res, uh, surgery rotations, right? Yeah, I think in my residency, I was the last person to do uh, general surgery. Um, and I was just the surgery consult for the entire hospital. It was really fun. Treated a lot of constipation. <laughs> Do you remember like one of those really long surgeries? What was the longest you had to stay in, stay in for? I think when I was in med school, one of them was like almost 12 hours. It was the entire day. That's intense, man. I mean, I mean, listeners who don't know why this is really a challenge is because as a medical student, you usually don't get to do much. You're usually just standing there for hours pretending to be super excited about something you're not getting to do, you know, like you're, you're like watching this happen. You're kind of just like, uh -huh, you're ready to go. Cause they might ask you a question at any point and you have to be like ready to go. You can't be daydreaming about what you're going to eat for dinner. You know, you kind of have to be in the moment. It's pretty intense. I'm so glad I'm not doing it anymore, but on to an equally uh, painful conversation. We're going to talk about violence against doctors and the reason we're we're doing this well i mean because it keeps happening but you know recently in the news there was the story you guys i'm sure all know about there was an orthopedic surgeon in memphis by the name of dr benjamin mock i think i'm saying that correctly he was shot to death by his patient you know there was, he was in the news cycle for about a day or two kind of went away all the stories referred to him as a top doctor quote unquote or a well-esteemed doctor like that makes any difference. I could say any better if he was like a bad doctor. But this is tragic and horrific story. He's a father of two. Um, and the basic elements of it, uh, we still don't entirely know why it happened. But the uh, person who is alleged, the alleged murderer is Larry Pickens. 
He'd been waiting for a couple hours before, you know, executing the uh, 43-year-old doctor inside of his exam room. It, it was his only murder was the doctor, which the, the articles of the day were all like, great, it's all okay. It was just one guy. It wasn't a mass shooting, which for like American standards is like awesome, I guess. The police didn't disclose a, a possible motive, but the Tennessee Senate Minority Leader Ramesh Akbari uh, said uh, that the shooter had threatened a clinic employee over the course of the prior week. And per the New York Post, he had been institutionalized approximately 10 times for his mental health. I mean, this is the New York Post, so take it for what it is. Um, and interestingly enough, the story says that this Pickens, the guy who was the alleged murderer, um, his stepfather was actually someone he had attacked with a knife before. And Dr. Mock actually had helped take care of the stepfather that he had attacked. I don't know if there's any involvement there or if the Dr. Mock was treating Mr. Pickens directly. I don't know. But it, it, it brings to light the story. I want to talk about it while it's still kind of in people's memories. And I want to start with some basic facts if we have them. And Let's start with the very basics. How common is violence against medical professionals? Allison, why don't we start with you? Uh, so unfortunately, violence against healthcare workers is shockingly common. Uh, fortunately, very few of these attacks are fatal. So Bureau of Labor Statistics is the big tracking organization in the U.S. They collate data from hospitals about both uh, fatal and non-fatal attacks on healthcare workers. And in 2020, there were only 64, again, only 64 fatal attacks against healthcare workers, compared to about half a million non-fatal attacks against healthcare workers. So fortunately, when you look at the big picture, very few of these attacks are fatal. But when they are, they tend to make the news and tend to be like very shocking. They kind of rattle us to our core. You know, I, I should also mention here that um, the reason you both are on, other than you're both astounding young professionals in your field, and Ryan and I like to feel old and have younger people on the show, is that you both have written about this. And there's not a lot of people writing about this. Uh, I feel like the only people writing about it are people kind of younger and in the start of their careers. Is there? Why is that? Is there... Why do you guys think that is? Why why is this a subject that you guys started paying attention to and following the research on? Well, unfortunately, I got involved with this uh, following the last big publicized shooting of a doctor, uh, Dr. Phillips in Tulsa. And that prompted uh, one of the journal editors to reach out and ask us, you know, with the same questions, how common is this? Like, can we do anything to prevent this? Um, and it's kind of disappointing that, you know, a year later, it kind of feels like we're still at the same spot. Um, but these are big systemic issues and, you know, they're going to be slow to change. But it is very disheartening as a doctor to be like, wow, OK, like we're still here. Yeah, no one else is talking about it either. Yusuf, what about yourself? Yeah, so I actually fell into the workplace violence space um, during my gap years. I was working over at Kaiser. Um, kind of as their safety operations leader. And a big part of my portfolio was how to prevent workplace violence and how do we deal um, kind of with the growing epidemic of violence in the workplace. 
So I focused a lot on threat management, building systems and infrastructures to respond to workplace violence. And this was at the height of the pandemic. Um, so it was quite interesting. And it's just become a topic that's near and dear to me and I've carried it through med school. Um, and I don't see it going away anytime soon, unfortunately. Ryan, you work in the emergency room, which is, you know, I think most people would imagine is one of the most unsafe places for doctors to be. I mean, I'll have our two guests weigh in on that, but is this something that you guys talk about? Is this something you guys sort of that's on your minds in the emergency room? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is something that happens all, all the time um, and probably more often than gets reported or the people take seriously even, but uh, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, it makes the work hard. It makes it hard to treat, treat patients. Um, and I, I don't know that there's necessarily like always a lot of good answers or, or great discussions that even come from it. But it's something that weighs on you, I'm sure. I'm sure it has a part of that. So talking a little bit more about these these attacks, you, you, we talked about the non-fatal ones. Um, what what are is the mechanism of most of these attacks? Are they gun? Are they knife? Are there this physical violence? What tell us a little bit about that? So I'm not sure there's great evidence from what I've seen about that. Uh, the kind of the best the best data bank is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And unfortunately, that is still very high level. Um, kind of the suggestion from the data that I've gotten is that most of these are, again, just physical attacks with like fists or their body, not usually using a weapon. I'd agree. Um, you know, taking it a step back, I think, you know, zooming out from the non-fatal side, um, verbal threats and, you know, what they categorize as like a verbal um, acts of violence is by far more common than physical um, across most countries from what I've seen, including in the US. And then like Allison mentioned, when you look at the physical acts of violence, um, a lot of it is hands, fists, you see it in patients that are um, kind of elderly that have dementia, folks that are in the ED that aren't fully aware of what's going on that are altered. Um, and it kind of escalates from there, from the scratching and fists to you know, throwing things like oxygen tanks or mayo trays or whatever they can get their hands on. Um, but it's kind of like a sliding scale, I would say. Is there any sense of there being an increase in, in acts of violence against healthcare workers since COVID? I mean, it certainly feels like it, but I mean, is there any evidence that that's actually happening? Yes. So from what I've found, there's, um, there's been a pretty substantial increase in violence against healthcare workers since COVID. And I think one of the things that's been noticeable for me is that it's extended outside of the hospital as well, to the point where there are now, you know, verbal, sometimes physical attacks against healthcare workers and sometimes digital attacks, uh, you know, doxing, et cetera, against healthcare workers, uh, like in a non-professional space. Yusuf, same with you. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen, um, you know, data out there that support the fact that there's an increase in workplace violence. Um, I think part of that has to do with um, COVID. And I think part of it has to do with the increase in reporting now that this topic is getting more visibility. Um, I think some hospital systems are starting to adjust and trying to build infrastructure uh, for reporting. But I think we're far, we've got, we've got ways to go on that front. Ryan, you notice it too, right? Just like since COVID, that thin veil of civility that people have learned to wear has just basically fallen. 
Like I, I don't, I feel like even outside of the hospital, but particularly in the hospital with patients and even sometimes with colleagues, I feel like uh, things are much more combative than they've ever been in the past. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like just that not even the lack of kind of civility, but harassment, like like very serious targeted kind of things, um, not necessarily violence, I guess, but definitely people doing doing malicious things and, and trying to hurt healthcare workers in, in some way or another. You mean like having a whole segment on the uh, Tucker Carlson show about, like, say, a doctor <laughs> that they don't like and sending all their nasty, nasty little minions against them, something like that? Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> I feel like people everywhere are just a little bit worse. I was out where I was in Sausalito, beautiful little little neighborhood in, in north of San Francisco walking with my wife and pushing a baby in a stroller and these people were jogging behind us and they started yelling at us we're on a sidewalk they're like get out of the way we're trying to run here i'm like what the fuck is going on and i look back and this guy was like they were like yelling at us we like, okay we moved out of the way and they're like fuck get out of the way i'm like we're just walking on the sidewalk i mean like maybe i'm wrong but I feel like people are looking for a fight no matter what now. I feel like it's happening. It's definitely come through in in emails. Like I think when you some sometimes when doctors are looking through their emails from patients now, I feel there's some degree of PTSD we're all getting from that. I think we're all a little bit more reluctant to look at our inboxes and take care of them the way we should because the likelihood of getting a nasty email in there from somebody is really high. Uh, and, and, and I've heard doctors talk about this a lot, like people forget that there is a human person on the other end of that, uh, whether or not there's a power dynamic, there's totally one with between doctor and patients. And that's true. I get it. But the doctors are still humans. So um, I, I definitely think it's been getting worse overall. So I guess I'm not surprised if I hear the acts of violence against healthcare workers have gone up, you know, in, in reason 4,333, why the internet's a terrible place. I posted um, something recently about this attack in Memphis and the murder of this doctor. And most of the comments on it were supportive or, God, that's awful and tragic. But there was a significant number of people who responded with something like, nah, well, the doctor probably didn't take care of their pain the way they should have. Or, you know what, doctors should be listening to patients. And, and I'm just like, God, I just didn't think that people would need to both sides this particular topic but they certainly did. So one of the things that came up a lot, actually, in that post when I posted it, was people talking about how this occurs in all countries. We're not special. It has nothing to do with America's love of guns and our gun violence. But is that true from your perspective, Allison and Yusuf? Have you guys noticed, is there any difference between the numbers of attacks on healthcare professionals here in this country versus other countries? So the data is a little bit messy in terms of prevalence of workplace violence in different countries. Um, I would say that there is literature that supports the concept of higher acts of workplace violence in certain countries, especially in Asia, but it does not really distinguish um, you know, verbal acts of violence versus non-fatal physical acts of violence versus fatal acts of violence uh, you know, by guns and things of the sort. Um, but on the other hand, there is data that shows lower acts of workplace violence in certain countries like in Europe. So it's hard to tell. 
Um, and part of that is just an issue with data collection across the globe. Well, I want to talk more about like the gun aspect, because I, I feel like that can't be a similar problem anywhere else. And the amount of guns that I mean, I have experienced anecdotally in my own work uh, just seems disturbing. Um, I mean, treating people who have been shot, you always have to risk someone coming coming into the hospital, their retaliation shootings. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, a, a nearby hospital a group of people tried coming in with assault rifles. Um, I mean, I've been doing like an abdominal exam on a patient and felt a gun in their waistband. Um, those kind of things just, I don't think that that's happening anywhere else. That that has to wow. be an American issue. It feels pretty American. Does that, does that sound about right to you guys? I would generally agree with that. But I think, you know, like Yusuf said, the data just isn't really fleshed out in very complete ways. But yes, I would say like, just based on the higher levels of gun violence in America in general, that, and anecdotal experience as well, I would say yes. Ryan, what do you do when you are doing an exam on a patient and they have a gun on them? What do you, what do you do in those situations? I, I mean, I leave the room. That's, I don't, there's no no reason for me to be a part of that. If someone brings a gun in, I mean, they, they don't have an emergency, a life-threatening emergency um, that needs to be addressed, then th they can be discharged. Um, do you feel like there is enough security? Like, do you feel like, um, what I mean, what would make you feel safe? Well, I think the problem is not everywhere has completely secure like exits and entrances. I mean, some of the hospitals I've worked at have had very few exits and entrances. Some of them have a ton and they're just wide open. Um, so, I mean, most emergency departments now have metal detectors to get in. But if someone comes in by ambulance, goes in through like the back door um, or enters the hospital through another way, there's a lot of ways to get past that. And I think even, I mean, metal detectors and whatever security measures aren't always perfect, but yeah, it seems, and people are trying to bring guns in sometimes, especially for like retaliation things that is yeah. concerning. And in this doctor who was in his clinic, I don't know what you do screen everybody in your, if you have a small clinic, people sitting in the waiting room, someone has a hidden firearm on them. I don't know how you can address that. Um, definitely seems like a problem more with the guns than with add, adding more security to every healthcare interaction. Yeah. I mean, how much can we do? I mean, how? I mean, no one wants to go to their doctor and have to get patted down. You know, I don't know what what they're expecting from this. Um, do you guys, in your you're looking at the data on this? Do you feel like there are? And we talked about it a little bit before with the emergency room, but do you feel like there are specialties that are are more at risk? I'm assuming the ER is one, but I'm assuming there's more than that too. Absolutely. So the highest, uh, the highest, the most affected specialties are the emergency room, psychiatry, and geriatrics. And there's pretty strong data that supports that. Um, these are likely because these are environments in which you have a high percentage of patients that are either intoxicated, psychotic, delirious, or have dementia. And all four of those things are risk factors for violence. So it, it makes sense that you have a population that's enriched for these traits, which puts you at increased risk for violence. Uh, so it, it makes a lot of sense why those three would be most affected. 
is it my imagination or I feel like pain medicine doctors are at high risk for this? I feel like people who don't feel like their pain is being controlled are angry in, in, in a way that could lead to a violence, like an act of violence. Is that my imagination? Absolutely not. Anecdotally, I will say that that's some, a trend I've also experienced um, in terms of like what the data suggests is one of the what's called like flashpoints for violence is when patients feel like their pain is not being adequately treated. And another one is uh, the following of rules rigidly without kind of a consideration for the patient. And typically when you have a patient in the hospital that's saying, you know, I'm in pain, uh, I need more, I need more opioids, I need more this, that tends to be a situation where you've set up a situation where one, they feel as though their needs are not being responded to. Two, you've set up this area where the doctor is more likely to kind of rigidly comply to a set of rules because there are, you know, people watching how many opioids are prescribed in this, uh, especially in like pain management clinics, outpatient pain management clinics, where, you know, following the opioid crisis, uh, there's been a lot of uh, appropriate watchfulness about what's being prescribed. So it really sets up uh, almost a powder keg where you have like just a confluence of situations that just are pretty ripe for violence. It seems like recently in the past few years, there's been at least a handful of cases that were specifically related to a feeling of untreated pain where the physician or, or prescriber was murdered. And that is where I've seen these disturbing responses where it's like justifying the well if someone's in pain, they got to do what they got to do. And not to say that people should be left in pain, but I mean, it's murder. That's, that's kind of an extreme. Yeah. I, th I thought that was something we could all agree on. Well, yeah. Dr. Phillips, uh, the, the case of the shooting in Tulsa, which was actually kind of inspired my research in this, uh, was murdered because of a patient who following his back surgery felt his pain wasn't being adequately controlled and blamed the surgeon for this. So, you know, there's, like high level data, but there's also these very powerful anecdotes of that as well, yeah. I think one thing that also ties into the pain clinic aspect is um, a lot of folks that are being seen in outpatient pain clinics long-term, I know from the literature, um, chronic pain patients have higher rates of psychiatric diagnoses like PTSD, depression, substance abuse, which are all things that have been shown to increase um, kind of the rate of workplace violence. So it's kind of this, you know, perfect storm of sorts in terms of this very vulnerable, um, you know, group. I have to say, I was a little surprised when you mentioned, Allison, that geriatrics was one of the top three. It, why? Explain that to me, why geriatrics would be the involved. So uh, when you think about geriatrics, like, you know, you're an internal medicine doc, you see this all the time when you're looking at like delirium or dementia, huge risk factors for violence. Um, you think about people, people get agitated because they're not sure where they are. Uh, you know, that strikes a lot of fear into like patients. And when you think about healthcare workers, you know, we're not talking about just the hospital. We're also talking about nursing homes or like home health aides. Um, so there's, you know, the uh, the elderly interact quite a bit more with the healthcare system, and they tend to be, you know, more likely to have uh, 
these traits of you know delirium or dementia, which put them at greater risk for violence. So it's oh. you know, it's it's funny when we think about we don't think about like you know grandma like attacking the doctor with her handbag, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. you know, I think part of the reason that we've had such a hard time with finding nurses and staff to work in you know nursing facilities is because there's such a high rate of violence. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Is there, is there a, are there certain clinician features that are more at risk or for example, are women more likely to be victims of, uh, violence in the, in, in healthcare than, than men, or is, is that my imagination? So data, data suggests that women are more likely to be victims of verbal aggression, whereas men are more likely to be victims of actual physical aggression. Um, oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just it's just bad news all around. Yeah. Um, but this is also, uh, I think, what's a little concerning is that this is this is a very intersectional problem. So, uh, so patient or excuse me, clinicians that are from another country or that have an accent are also at increased risk of like experiencing violence from a patient. And uh, minorities are actually at an increased risk of experiencing violence from patients. So it's really like a very, like it's a very powerful, you know, combination. If you have, you know, if you happen to be, you know, a minority or, you know, someone from a foreign country or someone with an accent, this is, you know, like a real, a real threat. That is very interesting. And disturbing what's the thought behind that i mean is it because there is just the i'm assuming some component of racism but is there something else to it to that is there something like the the patients are feeling um their communication isn't as good what i i mean obviously racism is the number one feature here but is there something else i'm missing there so speculation here is that there is there's an element of power dynamics anytime you have an attack on a healthcare worker, which explains why if you are a nurse, you are far more likely to have experienced violence than a doctor. So there's an element of power dynamics anytime you work, anytime you talk about healthcare violence. And you know, when you think about systemic structures of racism and you know, uh, nationalism that kind of contribute to this, like it. It makes sense to me. There's not, this is mostly speculation about trying to explain a trend that we do see mm-hmm. in the data, but that is, that's how, that's my understanding of my speculation on the cause for it. I, I can tell you, I mean, I have seen second opinions on patients and the patients will be upset about the first doctor that saw them, not to the level of violence or anything, but whether well, they'll be talking about the doctor that first saw them and it won't be, it's not, it's not rare to hear someone say something like, I just couldn't understand their accent and it was really bothering me. That that will happen sometimes and it makes them mad. And it's interesting that it's mm-hmm. it's part of this power dynamic you speak about. Mm-hmm. It seems like yeah. violence and those kind of extremist tendencies seem to go hand in hand with a lot of that, like racism, nationalism, other sort of bigotry and, and hate groups. Yeah, I'm starting to think that racists aren't very nice people. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I don't know. I'm starting to wonder if 
They might be problematic. I don't know if I'd go that far, Ryan. I mean, I want to look at this from all sides, of course. I mean, (laughs) racists bring a lot of interesting things to this country. Um, Wait, hold on. Let me think. What have racists done for us? Um, hmm. NASCAR? I don't know. That's not, actually that's not fair. There's probably some. There's probably a lot of non-racist people who who like country NASCAR. music. Yeah, but the good country music is like progressive people, <laughs> like Ray Wiley Hubbard and Chris Christopherson. So yeah, no, not that either. No, I'm not sure what they contribute. I don't think they contribute much. Let me ask you guys. You're young people. You're young, right? You're young people. Ryan and I are old. Look at us. We're sad. We're old. Look at Ryan's beard. Look at that. There's one gray in there. Do you see it? It's terrible. And <laughs> And we don't understand what it's like to be young and, and virile, such as yourselves. Do, do you guys feel like this uh, thoughts about this sort of stuff are uh, will affect people's choices for what kind of specialty they go into? Is this something you guys have considered in that regards? Um. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, I, uh, I can't speak to that. I'd say I think it's affected a lot of how people are choosing to progress their career. So, you know, following, following the pandemic and the increases in like incivility and violence that we've been talking about, we're seeing a lot more people that are retiring or people that are choosing to go to like a less uh, potentially fraught setting. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, we said at the beginning of the podcast, I had a hard time choosing specialty to begin with. So <laughs> um, I can't really speak to that. Um, what about you, Yusuf? Do you, uh, did this affect you at all? Is this something that's going to, you're a medical student, you're in the process. She's already chosen. She's going to be a psychiatrist. It's happening. She's locked in. It's happening. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. I think it does weigh on, as I think it does weigh on students as we're considering, you know, what we want to do. Uh, a big part of your first years of med school, you really haven't seen much. There are so many specialties you've never come across. Um, a lot of folks that came to med school post-COVID um, didn't shadow at all during college or after because of all the restrictions. And when your first exposure um, to a specialty is talking to different doctors and residents and you ask about, you know, what their days are like and you talk to someone like Ryan who was like, well, when I do abdominal exams, I find guns in my patient's waistband. Like that's- Not all of the exams, <laughs> just 30, 40%. <laughs> But it's concerning nonetheless. Um, And I think it does turn people away from certain specialties when you see um, kind of their day-to-day and what they go through. 
Um, and I think working in like a pain clinic or working in the ED, um, it takes a certain someone to, to be okay with that. I think a lot of people just are in a place where you go through so much to be a doctor, you don't want to have to go through that as well. Yeah. Do you guys feel like this is contributing to burnout? Is there any data on that? Oh, there's a, there's a ton of data on that, that uh, verbal, verbal aggression from patients, physical attacks uh, contribute highly towards burnout. There's very strong data on that. I mean, nothing is more like after like, if, if you have a long day of doing hard work in the hospital, um, you leave tired, but for the most part, you leave feeling some part of your soul has been replenished. You feel like you've done something good. You go home and, and you sleep great that night. Um, if you have one bad interaction with a patient, uh, that can ruin a week for a doctor. I and mean, we don't like that. We want to help people. We want to be people. We're people pleasers for the most part. And we want to help. We want people to be happy. We want to, we want people to walk away from every interaction feeling like we contributed some way positively in their life. And when that doesn't happen, you know, even if it's just a small verbal aggression, that's that weighs on a doctor. That's crushing. That's soul crushing. I mean, part of the the risk and the the reward of being a doctor, the payoff of being a doctor is that uh, feeling of connection with the patient, you know, uh, that emotional connection. You suck the marrow out of those moments. And if you don't get that and you get the opposite, you get some, some something toxic back. I mean, it's, uh, it'll wreck you. It'll wreck you. I'm, I'm not surprised, I guess, to hear that. I mean, yeah, it bums me out or makes me like, is this really worth it when someone is treats you terribly, yells at you, says horrible things, but, and not to like belabor the same point, I feel it burns me out way more the level of violence we have just in general. Um, and I think probably every specialty, you're going to get the people who are not happy with you, people who are just mean, angry people. But day in and day out, I mean, seeing other people be victims of like gun violence, that kind of thing. Um, that is really kind of soul crushing to me. Yeah, no, you see, you see you're the, the front line of that, you and paramedics, you know, that go to the site, but you're seeing the, the worst of it in the ER. I mean, I, I don't know. How do you, I don't know, what do you do, man? How do you, uh, how do you keep your faith in humanity when you see violence constantly? I mean, being part of a team that's taking care of it is, I think, the best part. That is what keeps me going. Um, but I hope that I don't ever, like, lose the ability to feel bad about that kind of thing. That's the day when I really need to get out of it. That would be a big problem. Um, I'm glad you brought up, though, paramedics. That was one thing I feel like is probably under-recognized is, like, EMS and pre-hospital people face violence from patients seeing situations all the time. Um, and it's probably something that I don't think really gets much attention. And especially because they're usually like overworked and underpaid to begin with. Um, yeah, they, yeah. I mean, stopping, I mean, even just on the highway, people will hit, hit paramedics with their cars, not to mention the ones who actually get murdered, um, which is probably also under, under recognized and reported. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think a big challenge in general, kind of piggybacking off of that, is the culture surrounding workplace violence and the culture in different departments, divisions, and fields. Um, I've worked in EMS for about nine years or so now, and the culture there is very different, a little bit similar to the ED, 
where it's kind of, um, you know, this is the job, get it done type of situation. And one of the biggest things that, you know, I struggled with um, and folks struggle with in general, when you look at people holding um, jobs and preventing workplace violence is how do you actually change the culture from this is part of my job, this is normal and flip that on its tail and say, this is not normal. I should not be yelled at. I should not be assaulted. This is not part of my job. And making that change is very, very challenging. Um, and I think we're finally making that shift as providers and clinicians, um, which is make which is a step in the right direction. All right, Yusuf, let me ask you uh, at this point, what do we do about this? What what can we do about it? You've studied systems here. You've been working with them. What do you recommend doctors individually do and hospitals do? So that's a loaded question. Um, I'm loaded, buddy. I got loaded questions. I'm so... <laughs> bow, 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 speaking of gun violence, finger bullets at you both. <laughs> loaded! Um, I think that it requires solutions and innovation on multiple fronts, and it requires a multi-tiered response. So on one end, I think we have to equip providers and clinicians with the tools to actually deal with the situations. Um, and an online module about de-escalation for an hour is just not going to cut it. <laughs> so de-escalation training, super important, um, can be valuable, but you're not going to get that on online training. So equipping providers and clinicians with, you know, what do you do? Education. Um, how do you respond when someone comes into a department with a gun? Who do you call? What resources exist? I think all that's really important for the clinician. On the flip side, um, hospital systems have to really commit to making substantial changes on how they deal with workplace violence. So building out systems for reporting so that when providers do report these incidents, something happens. And we know there's a lot of barriers to underreporting. You know, part of that is a perceived lack of change um, from reporting, um, lack of support, not enough time to file reports. But when you build out a system effectively where, you know, so-and-so provider has a violent incident, they report it, it's reviewed by a robust threat management team. That provider gets follow up within a week about what happened, right? You can see actionable change um, and it encourages an, a culture of reporting because you can physically see what is happening. So I think that we have to equip providers with tools, but as hospital systems, you need to build out robust infrastructure to handle um, reporting workplace violence, building out security measures, you know, doing hazardous assessments of your facility. Um, there's, there's so much there that I could ramble on and on about. Do you feel like any place is doing this well? Um, so my, my background in terms of where I've worked and what I've seen is limited. Um, I think that there are hospital systems that have really good reporting systems um, and robust threat management teams that actually review these incidents um, and follow up on every single incident. You know, you put, we put patients on a watch list that have had multiple acts of workplace violence or that have alarming acts of workplace violence, because we do know that a prior incident of violence is a very strong predictor of a future um, violent incident. So I think places do a good job. Um, I don't think that it is enough because one hospital doing this successfully is not going to make a dent in the thousands of hospitals that exist. And not to mention this whole other component that we're kind of neglecting, which is outpatient clinics, which what makes this really challenging is they don't fall under joint commission licensing. 
they abide by very different regulations. They don't have to have security. There isn't metal detectors. They don't have to report violent incidents. I mean, they fall into a whole other category, um, which makes this a lot more tricky. Ryan, do you hear from other doctors um, that they're not being listened to? Do you feel like that is a common thing when ER doctors are threatened um, that the, there's no support for them? Uh, so yes, this is something that I, I definitely hear and something that I think is not taken seriously enough or people don't feel they're being listened to about. But I will say that I feel it's gotten better over time, definitely not where it needs to be. This is something that should never happen. It shouldn't be a question about that. But um, I think people are listening more and taking it more seriously. The problem, it seems like at the end of the day is in the United States. I mean, we have a gun problem. We have a violence problem. Those are things that should be addressed. You shouldn't have to make an emergency department an impenetrable fortress. Um, but healthcare is a business. It's based a lot on patient satisfaction. I mean, patients are considered customers, that kind of thing. For me to say, I want to throw someone out of my emergency department just because they don't have a life-threatening emergency, which is the letter of the law, um, I'm going to get in trouble for not making them satisfied, not doing a, a full whatever, um, that kind of thing. So those are definitely other considerations. I mean, I think there's a lot of real systemic failures at play here um, that makes it kind of sad. But uh, I have seen it, it get better. I, I do want to say that, like, I, I feel people do listen to this and take it more seriously now. And I hope that'll continue. Yeah, me too. Allison, do you have any uh, recommendations for individual doctors to consider or considerations for individual doctors um, in this setting? I mean, I'm not like expecting you to teach us Krav Maga or some self-defense techniques, but like um, what what advice do you have for for doctors who are in fields where they might be concerned about this sort of thing? Uh, so speaking as a psychiatrist, this is something that I, th I think about a lot. Um, so the biggest thing that has made a difference for me is the realization that if I feel unsafe for any reason, that is enough for me to terminate an interview. And it's, it's hard because, you know, Ryan and Yusef, you've both talked about like this mentality of like, you got to get it done. You got to get the info. You got to get the IV place. You know, we, I think medicine in general attracts like very goal oriented people who go in and say like, this is the goal. And I think taking a step back and being, and saying, if I feel unsafe for any reason, being able to just walk away is, is powerful. And having an administration team that will allow you to do that I think is probably one of the most potent things you can do. Uh, otherwise, like bringing the human element back to it can be really powerful. I have had very good experience with patients saying, I, I don't appreciate how you're speaking to me right now. I want to help you, but I can't when you're yelling at me. So I will come back when you have calmed down. And, you know, that sounds like it's, it's such psychiatry language. Um, it kind of sounds a little bit like you're talking to a child sometimes, but um, it's been shockingly helpful. I wouldn't have before I, before I became a psychiatrist, I would not have thought that would have worked. Um, but just calling people on their behavior or, you know, in a little bit less of a flowery way, like you're being very rude right now or you're scaring me 
that you are raising your voice and being able to like actually put those names like people don't like to see themselves as like the scary aggressive person so just calling out that behavior and saying like this is not acceptable i will come back um in terms of like actually kind of like preventing it from getting that far i personally find like when someone is upset about why like uh, we talked earlier about uh rigid adherence to rules being a flashpoint for violence. Um, And sometimes they're just rules that don't make sense, but they exist in the hospital setting and being able to explain some of that of like, I can't do that because X, Y, and Z, or even just saying, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. Let me go ask someone else. And even if you come back and say, you know what? I tried, but I, I couldn't do that. It shows that you're trying to establish that you're on their team. And that can be sometimes very helpful. I'm glad you say that. I'm glad you say that. I mean, obviously we got to take into account there's always this power dynamic Mm -hmm. and almost by definition, you know, these people are seeing us because something's not going right for them and they may or may not have the tools to, to handle that well, or to, to deal with that mechanism. Well, we have to be mindful and cognizant of that. And we have to, we have to find ways to, to treat them the best we can. But at the same time, I do think it's important that doctors are able to feel safe in their job. I feel like that is a really basic tenet of of what we should be expecting in any profession, in any profession. So um, I'm glad you you say that. Ryan, you were going to say something? Yeah. I mean, I think those kind of preventive and de-escalating measures are the the best advice, hands down. Um, One thing I think people in healthcare are encouraged not to do though, is to like consider what is an assault. Like some of this is crimes are, are committed and you're encouraged to kind of just go on with your life, go home, take, take a day off, whatever, uh, ice your, your wrist. Um, but I think people should report this more. This should be reported. If not, I mean, escalated to appropriate authorities. If, if a assault has been committed or, or something along those lines and, I think that is one way that we can see this improve over time. Um, I know I've been told not not to do that. Um, so I think people should feel empowered to do so. Yeah. I mean, getting back to the original story of Dr. Mock, if the, if the reports are true that he had been threatening the office or the doctor or someone in the office the week prior, I mean, it will be really interesting to see what was done about that and what we can learn from that. I mean, these things should be taken seriously and and medical professionals, nurses, secretaries, doctors, everyone in the office should have the right to report those things. I think that is, I think that's a good thing. Um, All right, let's, uh, let's go on and finish up with some listener questions. Okay, this first question comes from Stephanie McGann Jansen, a friend of the show at Steph Jansen at uh, Twitter. Uh, she wants us to talk about the AMA statement, which she thought was complete nonsense. Did anyone read the AMA's American Medical Association statement on the shooting of Dr. Mock, the orthopedic surgeon, and be willing to uh, tell us what they said? So I read the statement from the AMA. Um, and for those of you who didn't, it's uh, a message from the top cop uh, for doctors on how to protect themselves or how to address workplace violence. Um, And they've got 
four points here. Uh, the first being have situational awareness, which I think is really great advice and kind of like a lot of what we've talked about is just be aware and get yourself out of a situation. Um, some of the other points I think were maybe a little less helpful, um, bordering on perhaps a bit tone deaf. Uh, point two is have a survival mindset, um, which is like a really nice soundbite, but kind of like disappointing if you are like a physician that feels like you're in an unsafe situation. Um, their third point is look to policies and they talk about like what kind of policies does your health system have in place. And we've talked about how right now those still need to be developed and Yusuf and Ryan both made really excellent points about how both the reporting and the actual systems need to improve. Uh, so looking to the policies feels, you know, like not an actionable step or something that can really be done. And the fourth point is consider combat parking, uh, which if you haven't heard about this is backing into a parking space. Uh, so that like, if you need to leave quickly, you can just like jet out. Um, it seems like a little bit unrelated to the other three points. Um, but I thought that was, you, you know, I, I have to say it's funny, but you know, I, I do think about these things. In fact, I did a psychiatry rotation when I was in medical school. I did my uh, two months in jail. And you learn in the in that environment, you, you learn certain things from the inmates. They, they're very, they're very willing to teach. They're very interesting uh, place to go for a psychiatry rotation to learn about forensic psychiatry. But there are certain things like you walk into a room, you notice all the exits, you notice where they are, you notice points of egress and entry, you never have your back to an entrance or anything like that. Um, there's certain, there is this, there is that mindset, I guess. Um, but like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure combat parking is all that helpful. I'm not sure that having to have this mindset is the right thing for us. I mean, as an American, you walk into a movie theater, you have to think, okay, where are the exits in case someone comes in with a gun, you know, whatever. But like, you know, this, it, you would think that we'd have more to offer than that, you know? That's like the last line of defense. Oh, I think I think that's the point that uh, Stephanie was. Is that who submitted the question? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's the point that Stephanie is making. Is it feels like we have so little to offer yet at this point because there's so many things that still need to be improved. So it's it, it's it's hard. And it feels a little bit like resiliency training. Like you, you should be more resilient rather than the system that's burning you out needs to be changed. My qualm with the, my qualm with this is there's, you know, barely any mention of how systems have to improve. Um, this very much feels like let's blame the people that are victims and tell them do better. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not the solution. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's a question from Dhruv Bhagavan at Dhruv Bhagavan on Twitter. And he's well known on this show for asking multi-part questions. So I'm just going to ask part one of his three-parter. Where do you draw the line between patient needs care despite violent behavior and patient is an unacceptable threat to healthcare worker safety? Brian, you have the most real world experience with this, I think, probably working in the emergency room. You've talked about it a little bit, but where do you draw that line? I mean, I think most like life 
life-threatening conditions are, are pretty easy to identify. But I think one thing that Allison brought up earlier that was important is a lot of this happens with patients who are intoxicated or experiencing acute psychosis or something along those lines. And those are still medical emergencies. That's not someone I can just dump back outside. But if someone is just has a gun with them and or they're threatening to come to my house because I, I won't do what they want, um, that's that's totally different. Um, so it, it is hard, I guess, but I feel like it's one of those things not, not to say like, I know it when I see it. Um, but <laughs> in a lot of cases, it's, it's going to be someone who has an emergency or, or has some sort of medical condition that, that does need treatment and needs, needs help for it. Yusuf, you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say like from an operational perspective, you know, we talked a little bit earlier and I wanted to mention this, but there's this concept of early identification, right? So as soon as something is starting to escalate or something seems to be unsafe, I think providers are um, less likely to ask for help immediately. And part of that's a safety culture, infrastructure issue, and I won't get into that. But the more we kind of train ourselves and have the ability to, you know, call for support, call for security, get PD involved, whatever, whatever that is before situations escalate to an unacceptable threat. Um, I think that's a very worthwhile pursuit um, because oftentimes folks don't come in at a hundred. Sometimes they do, right? But oftentimes it's some sort of gradual escalation. One thing that I think is really hard to tease out though is say you are responding to like a shooting event and there are people bleeding out there, but the is the scene safe? I mean, how do you draw the line? Is that an emergency worth risking your own life to go into? Um, so that it, it makes it really hard to, to answer that so question. I'll tell you on the EMS front, like pre-hospital, even if there's a fight, um, EMS will not show up to that scene until the police department has gone there and made sure it is safe enough to have um, EMS arrive at. It's a little bit different with active shooters because there's this whole, you know, new field of like tactical medicine where folks are like cross-trained. But for most like, you know, reports of shootings and stabbings and things of the sort, there's this concept of nobody even approach, but it's different in the hospital. You know, we don't have this concept of nobody approach or enter the room until we secure it. So it mm -hmm. goes back to the whole culture uh, component that makes it tricky. I like that it we're talking about this though, because just... Anecdotally, in my own experience, actually studying this and talking about it and has made me much more comfortable saying, nope, this is my limit. And even starting to think about wh where do I personally draw that line? And I think that's something we don't talk about enough. Because Yeah, you're absolutely right. The fact that we're even discussing this is kind of crazy to me, because as a medical student, you're sort of like when I was in training about 45 years ago, it was like you get the job done. It doesn't matter. Does literally if the, we would be in like a code or someone would come in from in the emergency room and they'd be taking swings at you and you're supposed to be there like putting a line in. <laughs> and, 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 the, and I'm not saying that still might happen, but at least now we have to be discussing it and figuring out where the line is. I mean, that's a new concept, I think, for a lot of us. Um, here, here's another interesting question uh, from Charlie. LMSW with HEDS. Wow, it's a long title. At Charlie Shrimp. I'll just do at Charlie Shrimp at Twitter. It's an interesting topic I have not thought about, but home health safety issues and concerns. 
So I'm assuming that is actually even more of a concern because when we have uh, nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors, people going to homes for home health uh, uh, checks, you're in their environment, much more likely that there's a gun lying around there than something they bring in. Is this something that's been discussed or you guys can speak on? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of literature that home health nurses and home health aides um, do have very high rates of workplace violence. And even though they don't meet that number one, two, or three, doesn't mean that the rates aren't very high. And I'll just add the little nuance there of like to Allison's point, why geriatrics was so high, is there's a very high volume of, I would say like lower risk acts of violence, a lot of slapping and scratching. Um, but you know, just because that volume doesn't exist in home health, for example, doesn't mean that it's not very problematic. And you're right, you know, what do you do? You know, you're in, you're in like uncharted waters um, in terms of this person having, you know, access to whatever they want. It's like the power dynamic almost reverses um, in, that, in that environment. So it's very tricky. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I am very impressed that you guys are addressing these things, that you guys know so much about it. I'm grateful that you are. I don't, again, I don't see a lot of other people doing it. Uh, I'm sure there are, but when I do a... a, a a search through the medical literature, there wasn't a ton of information on this. I suspect you two are at the forefront of this and hopefully you guys will continue to keep doing it and have fantastic careers, which I'm sure you both will in psychiatry and then in, in emergency medicine for you, uh, Yusuf. So um, thank you both. Let's get some plugs in here before we close up. I want people to know where to follow you if that's something you're into. Um, Yusuf, uh, what would you like to plug um, before we uh, close up? I'm on Twitter, uh, Ozzy Yusuf, and eventually we'll we'll be more active on there. But new to my Twitter. Uh, give them the spelling of your last name. So that's um, Fozy Yusuf, F A W Z Y, Yusuf Y O U S O F. All right, we'll be watching your career with great interest, young man. Uh, and Allison, where? Can people find you or what would you like to plug? Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, like Yusuf, um, more recent user trying to get more adept with it. But you can follow me at A Huckenpaller, H-U-C-K-E-N-P-A-H-L-E-R. All right. No more people complaining about my name being difficult to spell, <laughs> okay, or pronounce. All right. Ryan, my my sweet Ryan. Let's this everything. Where where can people find you? Let's talk about the let's talk about the YouTube channel. Let's talk about the YouTube channel. Where can people find that? What what do people do if they want to look at you on YouTube? They just, they just look into the YouTube box and say Ryan Marino MD. Is that it? Yeah, it's Ryan MD. So it's easy to find. Um, I'm still on Twitter. I don't know what's happening with social media. There's too many. <laughs> Are you on Blue Sky and, and Threads or whatever now? Yeah, I, I am too. I like it's Blue just... Sky. Blue Sky is a little bit less toxic. Yeah. Yeah. It seems a little bit more fun. It's a little bit more old school sort of Twitter vibe to it. Um, but not a ton of people on it yet because of their whole like weird rate limiting thing. Uh, threads I'm on, but I just don't think I can get into it. It's just, no. it's just, there's too much. I feel like, I, I mean, I just don't have the time or the energy for this sort of stuff. Will one of them finally win? I want just one of them has to win this microblogging war. I'm kind of rooting for it to be Mastodon or Post, but I'm sure those guys are already out of the the, the running. 
follow Ryan, definitely watch his YouTube channel. It's really interesting. And you get to look at his face while he talks, which is, it's a huge plus. Um, if you're not already following us, you can wherever we're on all those places, uh, find us on blue sky threads. Uh, but more importantly, rate and review us at iTunes. That really helps uh, get more listeners to the show. Thank you to Nadine for help with production. You guys have been fantastic. I'm super grateful uh, for you guys spending so much time talking to us. Uh, please keep in touch, everyone, okay? Yeah, thanks so thanks, much. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you so much. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.